Um, Exodus chapter 33, verses 1 through 17. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to, to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp, Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. As a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, Please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. This is the word of God. Please have a seat. We probably all know the scenario of been asked the question. Maybe we've asked the question ourselves. What would you do if you found a magic lamp? A genie came out and said, Master, you have three wishes. What is your first wish? What would you ask for? Imagine a friend of yours had this lamp, and you're like super excited for him, and he goes, all right, okay, all right, this is a big deal. I know what I'm... My first wish, Jeannie, I wish for a pack of gum. It comes in his hand. And you go, dude, this isn't a game. Like, what, what, 
Is it, are you for real? You can't be doing that. Don't waste your wishes. He goes, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. I'm sorry. Okay, I got it. I got this. My second wish, Jeannie, I wish for a lifetime of chicken nuggets. They're all around. Your friend just, you hit your friend, you're like, am I being punked? What is this? And he goes, I'll let you have some. You're like, no, you are, you are settling for far too low here. Like, I aim higher. Oh, okay, you're right. I get it. Okay, he says, all right, this is what I'll, okay, I got it. Jeannie, for my final wish, I wish for, no, $5,000. And you go, I, I don't know if I should choke you or cry. I, I'm walking away because nobody can be that foolish. Or can they be? Isn't this much what we do with God? You object and say, but God is not a genie. We don't just get to wish for things from him. We don't have a magic lamp that comes out whenever we rub it. Indeed. Indeed, we have something far greater. We have the all-powerful, sovereign king of the universe who says, I want you to be my child, and as your father, you have my ear and you have my heart. Call to me, and I will answer you and show you great and unsearchable things that you have never known. He says, ask me, and I will give you exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you ask or even imagine. And you ask for me to bless your lunch. You ask for me to give you a promotion or to get over your cold or to have maybe a good retirement. I'm not saying it's bad to ask for these things. You shouldn't be ashamed to ask God for such temporal things. Who else are you going to ask? Every good gift comes from him. What I'm saying is that that should not be your ceiling, but your floor. Ask him for more. What I want to tell you this morning is that we must never settle for anything less than all the fullness of God. Paul in Ephesians 3 verse 19, he prays for the Ephesians and he says, I pray that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. We must settle for nothing less. That's the heart of this message. And I want you to be stirred that you would seek after this, that you would pray this way. I want you to know why this is important. I want you to know why this glorifies God by showing you how I see it in the passage this morning. First, we see the situation that we find ourselves in from last week. Pastor Steve preached from Exodus 32 where we saw the Israelites had sinned against God. By creating this golden calf, bowing down to it, and saying that this, nay, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. They broke the first, if not the first and the second commandment. And God was going to destroy them for it. But Moses intercedes, being their mediator, and God shows mercy. Chapter 32, verses 13 and 14, Moses says, You promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you would give multiply them and that you would give them this land their offspring this land so please don't destroy them god has mercy but then he says at the end of 32 verse 34 that just go go into the land of canaan that's where you find yourselves in chapter 33 verses 1 through 3 the lord said to moses depart go up from here you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. 
I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. God had already saved them out of Egypt. He had already sustained them in the wilderness. He had already spoken to them at Mount Sinai. Now he's sending them off into the promised land flowing with milk and honey, but he refuses to settle among them. He will not go with them as their God and be near them, having them as his people in this intimate way. And, he, and he, he's, he does this. He refuses to go with them, not just because of their sin with the golden calf, but because of their sinfulness. Verse 3, I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for, here's the reason, you are a stiff-necked people. This is a term for those who, uh, uh, for the animals that would refuse to wear the yoke well, and they wouldn't pull. They couldn't be driven. They wouldn't be led. They didn't want to follow. They were stubborn and rebellious. This was the Israelites. God says, I know you're repentant now, but it won't last. You are a stiff-necked and rebellious people, and I'm a holy God. If I go amongst you, among you, I will destroy you. So just go. Go by yourself. And Moses says that this is a disastrous word. Look at verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. Why did they mourn? Why was this a disastrous word? God was getting ready to destroy them, and Moses interceded for them, and God said, fine, I won't destroy you. And he says, if, if I come near you, I will destroy you, so go. Shouldn't they be happy just to go away from where God's wrath would consume them? And he said, I'm going to give the land that you don't deserve. It's a land flowing with milk and honey, and I'm going to send my angel, powerful being before you, to wipe out the nations, to send them out of the land, so the land will be fully yours. Why is this a disastrous word? Why are they mourning? Because it isn't the fullness of the covenant blessings. The fullness of the covenant promise of God's blessed presence settling among Israel was lost to them. He would not go with them. They had already tasted and seen that the Lord is good and they longed for Him to dwell among them most fully to have all the special, the special privileges of His special presence among them and they were finding it Depressing, distressing, and downright disastrous that they would have anything less than all the fullness of God. But they were stuck. They were stuck because they were a sinful people. They say, we can't go on to Canaan without you, God, but you won't go with us because we're a stiff-necked people. And if you come near us, you'll consume us. What are we going to do here? The sinful Israelites were at the mercy of God, the God who would consume them if he got near them. Verse 5. Says, for the Lord said, said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. They were stuck. This was not good news. His eye was against them. But by the grace of God, his ear was toward their mediator. Their eye was against them, but his ear was, was bent toward their mediator, Moses. This is what we find in verses 7 through 11. Verse 7, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, far off from the camp so that God wouldn't be near them and consume them. And he called it the tent of meeting. Later he'll call the tabernacle the tent of meeting with a capital T 
But this is a precursor to that. This is not in the midst of the people. This is outside the camp, far away, and only Moses gets to enter into this tent. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. We'll come back to that. Then verse 9, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. The same cloud that represented the glory of God on the mountain, Mount Sinai. Now it's in this tent right at the entrance. And the Lord would speak with Moses. Verse 11, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Face to face, this means heart to heart. There's a personal intimacy. This is speaking of the privileged relationship that Moses has with Yahweh. He has God's ear and he gets to hear from the Lord. You find this, that they're stuck because of their sinfulness and God's holiness and his wrath to consume them. But there was a glimmer and hope that their mediator has the ear of God. It was up to Moses then to intercede for them, to go to bat for the people on their behalf. If verses 1 through 6, we have the disastrous word. And in verses 7 through 11, we have the privileged relationship. Then in verses 12 through 17, we have the refusal to settle. We have Moses here and his refusal to settle. Look at verse 12. Exodus 33, 12 and 13. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know who, who you, whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please now show me your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. And consider, too, that this nation is your people. So here we have Moses going into the tent of meeting to meet with the Lord face to face, as it were, pleading with him to give him, to give them the fullness of the covenant blessing of God being with them as their God, accepting them as his people all for their good. If Moses, is, if Moses is to lead the people into the promised land, but the Lord is not going to go with them, then Moses can, can no longer meet with God in the tent of meeting. And so in verse 13, Moses seems to be asking the Lord, can we continue this, this tent of meeting? Do you, do you see what's happened? Moses asked God, don't destroy them. Send them into the promised land. And God said, fine, I'll do that. Now Moses says, I'm not going to settle for that. God, would you give us the tent of meeting still so that outside the camp that I can meet with you, continue to meet face to face as a man meets with a friend so that I can have you reveal yourself to me, that I may know you and be able to know how to find favor in your sight continually. But it wasn't just for himself he prays. He prays for the people because you see in verse 7, as we said, chapter 33, verse 7 at the second part says, and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting. That is, they would go out to the tent near it, by it, and say, Moses, would you go into the tent and intercede for us, for our good on our behalf? Because you have the ear of God. You have access to him. But if the Lord won't go with them, then they no longer have that. Furthermore, if God won't settle among them, if he won't be with them, and if he just sends his angel before him, then they will also lose their assurance. They will lose, lose the assurance that Yahweh is their God and that they are his people accepted by him, that they have found favor in his sight. Now this gets at the heart of what it means that God would settle among his people. Two weeks ago, I preached from Exodus 24, where God was allowing the people to be near him. To be near God is the same thing as being as God settling among his people. It means that they would have assurance from the Lord. 
that he's their God and they're his people. Assurance. We see in verse 16, Exodus 33, 16, he says, for how shall it be known? Like, how will we know? Where's the assurance that we, that I, Moses, that we, your people, and the rest of the nations around us will know that you are our God? We need assurance from the Lord of our acceptance by the Lord. That's what it means that God would settle among them, that he would have their acceptance. Again, verse 16, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? This Hebrew word for favor here is the same word for grace or approval or acceptance. That I and your people, how can we know, how can we have assurance that we have acceptance by you? That we have a pardoning forgiveness and can be in your presence. We need assurance from the Lord. That we have acceptance by the Lord and access to the Lord. Again, verse 7, they would go out to the Lord, have access to Him whenever they would seek for some divine guidance or provision or protection or some blessing or help from the Lord, Moses would go into them, go into the Lord for them. Now Moses refuses to sell for anything less than this. They would also lose, if God did not settle among them, the pardoning and sanctifying and preserving power of God giving His special presence with His people. Because remember, they're a stiff-necked people. They have, they have wayward and wandering hearts, and they would so easily stray if God weren't among them. Isn't that partly what happened when Moses was up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments and the instructions for the tabernacle that would be built? They say, where is this God and where is this Moses? We don't know, so let's make our own gods. You see how quickly their hearts strayed when God wasn't with them. And I love this. In chapter 34, verse 9, it's a passage for... The next section, but in verse 9, he says, Moses says, And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is the stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. God, we need assurance that you will indeed accept us, pardon our iniquity and our sin, and that we have access to you, that you will take us to be your people, your inheritance. But you notice how he's arguing. O Lord, Go in the midst of us for this people, including himself, because it's, it's our iniquity and it's our sin. We are a stiff-necked people. What does God say in chapter 33, verse 3? I won't go up among you. I won't be in your midst because you are a stiff-necked people. And Moses says, that's why we need you to be in our midst. We need you to pardon us. We need you to sanctify us. We need you to preserve us because we will, we will stray if you're not near us. They would lose access to God and acceptance by God and assurance by God and this pardoning, sanctifying, preserving power of God and many more things. And the loss of these blessings was nothing short of disastrous. That's because to lose these blessings was really to lose the fullness of God himself. And to lose this is to lose too much. The loss of the glory and the goodness and the grace of the fullness of the covenant blessings being wrapped up with the presence of God settling among them, the loss of that is something to be mourned. Something to be fought for and sought after. But it can only be recovered by and kept through the favored one. Look at verse 12. Exodus thirty-three, twelve. He says, Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Moses is the favored one here. He's their mediator, and it's because he has favor with God, because he has given his ear to Moses. 
that Moses could intercede for them. But he would need to be determined and faithful in intercession, refusing to settle for anything less than all the fullness of God for his people. And by God's grace, this is what they have in Moses. He's simply unable to be content with anything less than the fullness of these covenant blessings wherein God personally settles among his people for their everlasting good. And so Moses goes to God and he asks for it. And what do we find God responding in verse 14? And he, that is the Lord, said, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. I take this here to mean it's a, the singular you. That he's talking to Moses. I'll go with you, Moses. I'll give you rest. But again, Moses says, I'm not going to settle for that. In verse 15, the ESV translation, I think, is somewhat unfortunate here. When it says, if, my, if your presence will not go with me, that with me is actually not in the Hebrew. And most tr- versions, English, translate it as with us because of the next rest part of that verse in verse 16, which I think that's correct. Because in verse 14, he's saying, I, won't go with, I will go with you, Moses. And Moses says, no, that's, that's not enough, God. If your presence will not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not that you're going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people? Moses refuses to settle for anything less than the fullness of all that God is for them, all that he's promised for them, because God, he knows that God has more for them. He knows that God is able and willing to do such a thing, so he's asking him for it. And it wasn't just asking for himself, but for him and the people. And he wasn't just asking for himself and the people, but for God too. Remember in verse 16 when he says, For how shall it be known? It's not just known to Moses. It's not just so that they would have assurance, the people. It's so that the nations around them would, would know that God brought them up out of Egypt. And he was powerful enough and faithful enough and merciful enough to take them all the way there and to be in their midst. This was for the glory of God as well as for the good of people and the joy of Moses himself. Moses is the mediator who can ask God this because God knows Moses by name and he is favored by God. That God knows Moses by name does not mean merely that God fully knows Moses, but rather and more so that God fully accepts Moses. And it's not because Moses is perfect and sinless. and Well, he's accepted because he's so just acceptable. That's not it. It's that God is a gracious God and he wants to prefigure the Christ. Jesus is the favored one. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, he says of Jesus. It is in Christ. It is in Christ who is accepted because he is perfectly acceptable. It is in Christ that we can have the blessings of God, that we can have the assurance of acceptance with and access to God, that we can be favored. And so if you're not trusting in Jesus, then you have no assurance of acceptance with God or access to God. The only assurance you have is that that if God were to draw near to you, even for a single moment, he would consume you. Call out to him. Go to him through the mediator, Jesus Christ, through who he is and what he has done. Go knowing that Jesus is the favored one and that you will be accepted because of Jesus. (laughs) 
Jesus is the one who is favored in God's, God's sight. And for those of us who are in Christ by faith, we know that it is Jesus who intercedes for us with God on our behalf. We know that it is Jesus who has purchased every spiritual blessing for us. It is in Jesus that we have all of God's promises as yes. Therefore, because of who Jesus is and what he has done and what he has purchased for us, won for us, fought for us, therefore, we too should be unsatisfied with and unwilling to accept anything less than all the fullness of God in Christ for us. This is what Jesus came for. It's what he fought for. It's what he died for and rose again for. It's what he's now interceding for his people for. He ever lives to make intercession for us. It's what one day he will come back to bring in, usher in the complete fullness of it forevermore. That we would have all the fullness of God. Now, there really is something to be said for peace, for patience, for contentment in this, this heavenward journey that we're on now. But it's our zeal. It's our zeal for more of God's blessings. It's our passion for the fullness of the covenant promises. It's our longing and our yearning for the fullness of God Himself that drives us on and keeps us going. Because we do not deserve, and yet we have been graciously promised through Christ, by grace, the fullness of the covenant blessing that Jesus has purchased for us. We therefore must not allow ourselves to be content with only part of what Jesus has purchased for us. We must never settle for anything less than all the fullness of God. Can you imagine Jesus telling the parable of the buried treasure in Matthew 13 like this? There was a man who went out and he found a field and there was a buried treasure in it, hidden there. And he went and he broke it open to his piggy bank and he got, you know, maybe a third of that. And then he sold a few things at a garage sale and find, found some change in the couch. And he gave part of that to, just so he could access near the field so he could look at it. That doesn't make any sense. You, you don't get the, ben the benefit of the riches of that. Or if he says, okay, he, he found this field with a hidden treasure in it. And he went and sold all that he had so that he could buy this field. And he went to go dig it up. But man, it was hard work. I mean, the shovel gave him blisters and it was hot outside. So he stopped. He came back to it every so often and, and dug a little more. And then he stayed away for a while. Every couple of weeks, he, he'd go again and get some dirt away. And finally, he got the treasure, but it, it was too heavy. So he left it there. He opened it up and he, every few days or a few weeks, he'd just get like a buck seventy-five out so he could go get a coffee at McDonald's. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. But isn't that sometimes how we treat God and the treasure that he has offered us in Christ? We do not deserve the fullness of the blessings of God's covenant presence with us, and yet, even though it is fully purchased for us and promised to us by grace through Christ, we don't pursue it. We don't pursue him as we should. We're far too easily pleased. We settle. God forbid that we become complacent and settle for a simply no-hell kind of Christianity. God forbid that we settle for a, you know, a, a godless heaven. What, what did the Israelites say was disastrous? Going to the promised land without God is not the promised land. Getting to heaven, if Jesus isn't there, is not heaven. 
even if it were just less of God in heaven. We should not settle. We must never settle for less of God in heaven. We must never settle for less of God here and now. We must never settle for anything less than all the fullness of God. But too often we do. In what ways do we do this? Do we settle for less than what our mediator has died for, purchased for us, and is interceding for us to have? First off, it's often in just our low faith kind of prayers, our cold affection pursuit, and our dulled mindset thinking. And we just even sometimes don't think about getting more of God. It doesn't seem disastrous to us when we don't have more of Him. And we don't really mourn over or repent of our lack of pursuing Him with all fervency. You know, the health and wealth and prosperity teachers, they get it right. Which is why it's so dangerous. Because their gospel is distorted. But, but they get some things right. They say, God is more powerful than you can give Him credit for, and He can give you more. They're right. And God is a gracious and generous God. He wants to lavish on you all these riches. And you say, they're, they're right. And, and far too often we settle for less than God's best and the ultimate of what God has promised us in Christ. Again, they're right. But the reason why that's so dangerous is because that outward part is right, but in the heart it's so very wrong because their focus is off. Their focus is on getting something from God and not getting God Himself. Their focus is on these temporal, physical, circumstantial blessings. God says, you, you want to have health? How about one day you get to live forever with no sickness, no suffering, no pain, no death? You want to have riches? How about I give you the entire heaven and earth, all of creation as yours? That's your inheritance. One day you'll have it all. But here and now, we should be praying for our daily bread, praying for protection and for healing and for help. But that needs to be the very minimum we're asking Him for. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Ephesians 1.3 We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. But how many are we seeking after? How many are we passionately pursuing by getting into His Word? Or by getting on our knees in prayer? Or being with the people of God and coming to these worship gatherings? and not missing as often as we can by, by engaging in faith-requiring obedience. God, I need you for this. How often and how fervently are we pursuing to get more of God? And how passionately and how faithfully are we pursuing this for others, like Moses did, and like Jesus does? Are we refusing to settle for anything less than all the fullness of God for our children and for our spouses and for our other family members and friends and neighbors? Are we... Pursuing this for them? Friends, brothers and sisters, we have a complete Bible. The Word from God Himself. We have the ability to pray. We have the ear of the Almighty God through our mediator, Jesus Christ. We have resources coming out of our ears. We have religious freedom. We have church. 
We have covenant members and leaders and servants and a building and, and hundreds of other blessings that go with it. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ and all of God's promises as yes in Him. We have Jesus interceding for us all the time. He ever lives to do that. And we have the Holy Spirit of the Almighty God Himself dwelling in us, settling among us, tabernacling within us. What excuse could we possibly come up with for not pursuing more? What excuse could we possibly have for settling for anything less than all the fullness of God. We must come to see that it is a disastrous thing when we don't pursue all that Christ has purchased for us. We should weep and mourn and repent of settling for a few spiritual pennies when he has purchased for us and promised to us his infinite and all-glorious riches. And oh, how it must be little and dishonor God when we are content with just a little bit of him. Especially when Jesus has died to give it to us. And now he lives to give it to us. We should be seeking and pursuing and praying for more of God. Our prayer for God, our prayer for experiencing more of his blessing in our lives and through our lives to others, this prayer never falls on deaf ears. We have the ear of God. We get to meet with him because of Jesus and in him. Far from him not wanting to hear us, he calls to us to call to him. One pastor and scholar on his book and on the tabernacle says this, unlike the so-called gods of the nations and their religions, the one true God is more willing to meet with us than we are to meet with Him. The one true God, we could say, is more willing to give us all of His spiritual blessings that He's promised in Christ than we are to receive them. The one true God is, is more willing to give us all the fullness of Himself than we are to have Him. The last question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism, it, it asks, what does amen mean? When we say it in our prayers. Now often it means when we're saying it to other people's prayers or what something somebody else says, we mean, I agree and may it be so. But often when we're saying it in our own prayers, the Heidelberg Catechism I'm paraphrasing says, it means it is true and certain and follows it up with, for it is certainly more true that our Father hears our prayers than that we have even asked them. It's more certain, more true that God hears our prayers and wants to give us that and abundantly more so than we have even eagered, I've been eager to ask him for it. So what do you ask for? What do you pray for? What do you pray for yourself and what do you pray for others? And do you pray with passion and with fervency and with faith? That you have this assurance that God has accepted you and, and you have access to Him and He hears your prayers and delights to answer you because of Jesus Christ. Would you pray for a heart of holiness? A heart that, that hates wickedness, that is repentant of your sin, that mourns over your sin. Would you pray for a heart of humility that gladly embraces your dependence upon God for absolutely everything. And that delights to show that, that you are a mere jar of clay 
that the all-surpassing power belongs to God. You want everyone to see that. Would you pray for a heart of hope where you live by faith? It shows in your, your prayers and in your, your, your giving and your acts of love to others. And it shows that you are unshaken by this world. Would you pray for a heart of helpfulness and love to others that you sincerely and fully give yourself in sacrifice to others so that they would have all the fullness of God? Would you pray for a heart of happiness in the Lord that you would say, God, I want you to be my trembling joy. That nothing in this world can satisfy you and you alone. Would you pray for a heart of faith in his word and a fervency to seek him in it and to share with others about him? Would you pray for a heart that seeks God completely, knowing that when you seek for him with all your heart, he will be found by you? Would you pray for a heart that is so sincere and real about your pursuit of Christ that you count everything else as lost, as rubbish, in order that you may know Him and gain Him, more of Him. That you forget what lies behind and you strain forward to what lies ahead. Pray for a heart that draws near to God, knowing that when you do so, He will draw near to you. I've been praying for you Church, Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. I'll read it to you now. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell, that he may tabernacle in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will stir us up to realize more fully how glorious the spiritual riches in Christ truly are. Would you grant that we will be moved to long for and seek after and pursue more and more of God in our lives and in the lives of others? I pray, Lord, that you will strengthen our faith so that we will with great confidence and eager expectation seek you with all of our heart. I pray that this faith will be focused, our faith in you will be focused on your power and your grace and your eagerness and your assurance in Christ of acceptance that we have in you, of the access we have to you. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us to never, ever settle for anything less than all the fullness of God. And we know, we know that you are able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or, or think according to the power that is at work within us. And so we pray that to you be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.